We began a series last week going through the book of Colossians. We've been uh, calling this series Above All. Uh, the book of Colossians is a, it's a very interesting book of the Bible. Of course, it's a letter by the Apostle Paul written to the believers at Colossae. Uh, a couple things about it, though. Paul is writing this letter from one of his imprisonments. He's uh, been jailed numerous times throughout his ministry for preaching the gospel and refusing to stop preaching the gospel. And so he's been in jail a couple times. He's been beaten. He's been uh, chased out of town. He's suffered a lot of persecution for his refusal to stop sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But also what's interesting about this letter is he is writing to a group of believers who he has never met. Paul never went to Colossae. He never met these believers. It was started by another friend of his, Epaphras, who who started the church and established a church, and Epaphras is contacting Paul because there are some issues in this church that are concerning, and he wants Paul to address these issues. And though, no, though they've never met Paul, they all know who Paul is. They all know Paul is God's messenger. Paul is God's man. He's the man that God has chosen to help spread the gospel. He's the first missionary. So he's writing to these people who he has never met, and some of the things that he's heard uh, about them is the fact that they were allowing some religious cultural things to enter in to their personal worship. And Colossae was a, a Roman city. It was owned by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had freedom of religion. But their freedom of religion had a few catches to it. You could, you could worship any god you wanted to worship. If you wanted to worship a dog, worship a dog. You wanted to worship a cat, worship a cat. Don't know why you would, but you could worship anything you wanted to worship, any God you wanted to worship. You just could not say that your God was the only God, because if you did that, you would offend other people. And they didn't want other people offended because that could cause riots and trouble and all kinds of problems. So they said, don't don't say that your God's the only God because it could offend someone. But also, if you think your God is the only God, then you may think your God needs to be in charge and only the Roman emperor could be in charge. So they could have this freedom of religion with a few catches, but what it, what it developed was a lot of religious intermingling. Colossae was full of temples and shrines and all kinds of things to different gods. And what people tended to do was they would pick and choose different beliefs and different rituals and different practices from different religions to kind of make up their own religion. So... They liked that this church said one thing and this religion said another thing and this religion, you know, had another practice they enjoyed and they thought they could get one thing from this God. So they had all these different religions that people kind of cobbled together to make their own personal re religion. And the church at Colossae, the believers at Colossae had began, begun doing the same thing. They would take a practice from another religion and they would put it in with their belief in Christ. And they never started disbelieving Jesus. They never took Jesus out of place and said, you don't need Jesus. They were adding to Jesus. You need Jesus and this ritual. You need Jesus and this God. You need Jesus and this. And we've seen it in our modern culture too, people. You need Jesus and baptism. You need Jesus and church membership. You need Jesus and anything. And so it was a Jesus and religion. And what that did was it took Jesus out of his rightful place of preeminence in the world and in their lives. Because Jesus was no longer first place in their heart and their lives. 
he was sharing first place with other things. And so it diminished his deity. And we, don't under, we may not understand this, but when we allow Jesus to be taken out of his place of preeminence, it affects every area of our life. It affects not just our walk with God. It affects our relationships. It affects how we handle different people. It affects how we handle when people hurt us. When, we're, 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 when somebody uh, disagrees with us, it changes how we handle our money. It changes every aspect of our life, and we suffer because of it. We are not fulfilled. We struggle in our walk with God. And that's what a lot of folks that I, I deal with, I counsel with, who are, who are struggling with their walk with God. You know, people say, you know, I just, I read my Bible, I don't get anything out of it. I pray, I don't feel like God's hearing me. And, you know, when I dig deep enough, it, it always comes down to God doesn't have the right place in their heart. And because God doesn't have the right place in their heart, they struggle in their relationship with him. But another issue that they were having is these believers were wondering why Paul was always in so much trouble. Why is Paul always in jail? Why is Paul always getting beat up? Why is he always getting chased out of town? Why is he suffering so much? If he's God's messenger... If he's the, the voice of God, why is God allowing this to happen? They were basically saying if, if God, Paul is really God's messenger, why is he in prison? Why is he suffering? Doesn't that discourage him? Because it discourages me. Because whenever they suffered, whenever they had persecution, whenever they had tough times, they got discouraged and it affected their walk with God. But again, they got discouraged because Jesus wasn't in his proper place. And so in verse 24, Paul begins to answer this question. Why am I suffering? What does it mean that I'm suffering for Christ? And so we're going to, this is a very interesting, incredible passage of Scripture, and we're going we're to take a long time to go through it today. My, my introduction is 11 and a half pages long. My points are half a page. So we're going to take some time. So if you're like, well, I won't take notes till it gets to the points, you're going to miss a lot. So we're going to take some time. We're going to look at these verses. We're going to explain it, talk about these verses, point out some things. Then we're going to ask three questions that should help us in our walk with God. So let's start reading Colossians chapter 1, verse number 24. <clears throat> the Bible says, <clears throat> let me find it. What does the Bible say there? Okay says, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you? Okay, hold on a second. We're going to stop right there. Paul is rejoicing in his suffering. That doesn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense to the people at Colossians. It doesn't make any sense to us. Is he he's some kind of sadist or something? He, he likes having pain? Or is, is he just so spiritual that problems don't bother him? That pain doesn't bother him? That getting beaten up and getting stoned and getting thrown in prison and, and being arrested for, for his faith. He's just so spiritual that that doesn't bother him. He's so consumed with the Bible and the things of God that he doesn't care about hot food. He doesn't care about a clean bed. He doesn't care about his freedom. He's just so spiritual. All he needs is God. No. Paul was aware of what he was enduring. 
He was aware of the pain he was having to endure, but he was able to rejoice because he was willing to joyfully sacrifice. Joyful sacrifice is giving up something you love. Freedom, a relationship, time, money. It's giving up something you love for something you love more. And Paul loved bringing people to Christ more than he loved his personal freedom and his creature comforts. He was happy to give up these freedoms, to give up these things for the kingdom of God. It's a lot like what our missionary uh, Junior McIntosh and his wife are doing down in Belize. And Junior and, and Brandy, of course, they, they are from Tennessee and they lived in Tennessee their whole lives. And right before they were called to the mission field, they were able to build their dream home. They bought a little plot of land in the mountains and they built their dream home and they had everything perfect and they had the land just the way they wanted it. They had all the, the house the way they wanted it. They were having a, uh, they both had good jobs. They were living close to their family and their friends. But then God called them to the mission field. So they willingly sold their brand new dream home, sold all their possessions, packed up what little bit they needed said goodbye to their friends or families, and their daughters were, were in college at this time, so they're leaving their daughters, and they go to Belize. They leave the mountains of Tennessee for the jungles of Belize. A beautiful home for a, a place in the jungle that doesn't even have electricity most of the time. Doesn't have clean running water most of the time. There's snakes everywhere. A lot of snakes. That's how I know it's not the will of God for me to go there. I mean, they invited us down for a mission trip. Like, you got to be careful. You can step over a log and step on a coral snake, and they'll bite you and kill you in a couple minutes. They're everywhere. I'm like, well, you know what, Junior? I'll pray for you. Not visiting you anytime soon. But they willingly gave up these things for the cause of Christ. They are doing it because Jesus is worth it. Because the kingdom of God is worth it. Because bringing people to Christ is worth it. You rejoice in suffering when you love what you gain through suffering more than what you gave up in the suffering. Without love, without the joy of suffering, you will never endure. You rejoice in suffering when you love what you gain more than what you give up in suffering. It's like, it's like childbirth. You know, people say childbirth is beautiful. You know who says that? People who've never been through it. It's a lot of things. It's scary. It's vulnerable. It's loud. It's painful. It's messy. It ain't beautiful. When me, we had uh, Parker, our first, April was in labor with him for three days. Three days I had to hear her complain about being, about being in labor. No. But three days she was in labor. I finally took her to the hospital because her blood pressure was so high. They admitted her. They had to put her on an a, a IV drip of something, Pitocin, I don't know, some kind of thing, whatever. They put her on something that, couldn't, that made her loopy and she couldn't get out of bed. And so she's in pain. I remember we're in the hospital and you know, they put that little thing on you that tells you when you're going to have a contraction. 
And so I'm sitting there watching that monitor to tell her when she's having a contraction. She looks at me and she says, honey, here comes one, here comes one. And I was stupid enough to say, you're not having a contraction. The machine doesn't say so. <laughs> Don't ever do that, guys. When she says she's having a contraction, believe her. But so, you know, we, she couldn't get out of bed. We had a birthing plan. You know what a birthing plan is? It's what you do with your first child and then throw it out the window because it never goes as you plan. So we had this birthing plan, all this stuff. She was going to walk. She was going to do on the exercise ball, and she was going to have all this stuff going on, and it just pfft, went out the window. And it was, it was long. It was painful. It was, it was hard. Was it worth it? Eh. <laughs> I guess it was worth it. And then, then we get to Connor. Now, Connor was a lot better. Connor was the best birth we've had. It was harder on me than it was April because I was working full-time at night. I was going to school full-time during the day, so I was exhausted. So when she told me, I got out of class, she's like, I think I'm in labor. I was like, a night off, yes! So we went to the hospital, and again, we didn't have so much a birthing plan. She had some ideas what she wanted to do, and so again, she wanted to be, you know, keep a natural birth as long as she could. She had to have an epidural with Parker, never intended to, but because everything just went out the window, she did. So we're in there with Connor, and, and she's, you know, I'm helping her with the breathing exercises, and I am a great birthing coach. I really am. I'm, I'm awesome at it. Don't ever want to do it again. I'm three and out. But so she's sitting there, I'm helping her breathe, and, and finally I'm like, honey, I know you want to not have the epidural as long as possible, but I could really use a nap. Can you please take it? And so she took the epidural, and I went to sleep, and I'm like, wake me up when he's about to be here. And she did. She's like, honey, it's time, and I got to see Connor be born. And so his birth, his birth, of course, again, he comes out, and he's just so long and gangly and just weird looking. And his, his, his umbilical cord was so long, like they're jumping rope in the, in the delivery room because of it. But it was, it was a lot of things. Beautiful it wasn't. But was it worth it? Of course it was. Then we get to Lexi. Lexi, I almost had to deliver in the parking lot. We go to the doctor, or April, she's in labor, so we go to the hospital, and they, they tell her you're not in labor. Never tell a pregnant woman she's not in labor, because they will kill you. So they say, you're not in labor here. She's like, I can't sleep. I'm in labor. So they say, well, here's a sleeping pill. It won't hurt the baby. Go home. Take the pill. Get some rest, because she had a doctor's appointment the next day. So she takes the pill. We go home, and she's in labor, but she, so she can't sleep, but she's got the sleeping pill, so she's dopey. So she's up all night, kind of groggy, and, and I'm having to be up with her. And also we got Connor and Parker, so I'm dealing with them. And then the next morning we get up and we go to Cracker Barrel for breakfast before her, her appointment. And so she's eating a pancake and has a contraction and eats a pancake and has a contraction. And we get to the doctor, and the doctor, you know, examines her and says, Well, uh, you're at a six. I think it's time to go to the hospital. Hospital was right across the, the way, so we, we get in, we drive to the hospital, we go in, they check her in. They check her again, like, Oh, you're at an eight. It's almost time. And so April's like, well, can I get an epidural? And the nurse says, honey, you're so far along, you can't get, a, you can't get an aspirin. You get nothing. And what's funny is April looks at me and says, honey, I can't do this. Like, it's, it's nine months too late for I can't do this. This is happening. And so she gives birth to Lexi. It was like three pushes, boom, she's done. And it was, it was, it was, it was a lot of things. Beautiful it was not. But the suffering that I had to endure as the husband <coughs> was worth the result. And I'm sure April would say it's worth the result as well. Suffering for, to gain something you love is worth it. Now, April, she remembers suffering, and she 
looks at her kids and thinks it's, it's necessary for all that to bring these into my life, then it's worth it. She rejoices in the suffering. That's how Paul feels about the Colossians and his suffering. He's saying, if my suffering can grow your faith, if my suffering can produce a love for God in you, if my suffering can help you strengthen your walk with God, then I will rejoice in my suffering and I will do whatever it takes, pay whatever price I have to pay for you to know Jesus. Are we that type of believer where we're willing to pay any price, suffer anything we have to suffer so that people can know Christ? Or are we upset because our seat's been taped off for a couple weeks and we have a hard time finding a good seat? I know suffering. I came to church and I know what Paul's talking about. They sang two songs I didn't like. Air conditioning's down too low. I'm cold. And preacher keeps telling me to do stuff. I don't like that. I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. That's not the suffering that Paul's talking about. Maybe you hate when I talk about sacrifice and service because you come to church just to feel good. You want me to tell you how God loves you and God's for you and God's got everything under control and he does and you want some socializing and great. That's all true. But Paul says we have to suffer to serve God and we should rejoice in it. Paul is telling the believers at Colossae that they should expect sacrifice not personal comfort. But not only that, he's telling them to rejoice in their sacrifice, rejoice in their suffering because of what they will see God do through it. Paul says, I'm not, I'm not discouraged because of the suffering I endure. I rejoice in them because of what it produces in you. And that's the first eight words. Let's keep reading verse number 24. He says, <clears throat> who now rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up that which is behind. That word behind there in the Greek literally means lacking. So to fill up that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. What could be lacking in the afflictions of Jesus? When Jesus hung on the cross... Right before he died, he said, it is finished. He's done everything necessary to save us. When he came to earth and was born of a virgin and lived a perfect, sinless life, completely fulfilled the law of God. And then he was, he was hung on the cross and beaten and scourged. And he died in our place and was buried. And then three days later rose again. He did everything needed for our salvation. So what is lacking? See, the work of salvation is complete. Jesus did everything necessary to save us. Which is great because we couldn't do anything. He did for us what we could not do, and he did all of it. He didn't do 90% of it or 99.9% .9 like the German Purell kills. He did 100% of everything that had to be done for our salvation. The work of salvation is complete, but the act of salvation is incomplete because we have to hear the message and receive it. We have to hear and respond. Martin Luther said this. He said, it wouldn't matter 
if Jesus died 1,000 times if no one ever heard about it. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying Christ's suffering isn't complete until you hear and respond to it. And if it takes my suffering to accomplish it, I will gladly go through that. One pastor said it this way, the quote on the screen. says, Christ's cross was for, for propitiation, that's payment. Ours is for propagation. Christ suffered to accomplish salvation. We suffer to spread salvation. Now, we don't like hearing that. That's not a popular truth because suffering, we don't like to suffer for God, but suffering is the means that God has ordained to bring salvation to the world. Just look at the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, before Jesus ascended, he goes, you're going to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you'll be witnesses for me. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the innermost parts of the earth and the Holy Spirit. They prayed and the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they preached and thousands were saved. And for several weeks they kept preaching and just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people got saved. And they were doing a great work. But they weren't leaving Jerusalem. They were staying there. So what happened? Stephen, the first martyr, happened. He gets taken out, he preaches the gospel, he gets taken out, and he's stoned to death for preaching the gospel. And what happened then? The church spread. And when they spread, they took the gospel with them. God uses suffering to spread the gospel. Before he ascended to heaven, Jesus said, Even as my Father has sent me, so send I you. God sent Jesus to bring salvation through suffering. Jesus sends us to spread salvation through suffering. Now, suffering doesn't mean we're all going to go to prison. Suffering doesn't mean we're all going to get hit with rocks. Suffering means we're going to have to sacrifice something. Sacrifice our time. Sacrifice our friendship. Sacrifice our money. We have to give up something to help spread the gospel. Is that a price that we are willing to pay? It costs nothing for you to be saved. Jesus paid all of it. But we, are we willing to do whatever it takes for people all over the world to hear the gospel message? We owe that to the gospel. We owe that to our salvation. How can we receive the extravagant grace of God and the extravagant grace of the gospel and not do whatever we have to do to make sure everyone hears about it? Keep going to verse number 25. He says, Wherefore, I am made a minister. That word minister there means steward. He just finished talking about the church. Now he says he is a servant of the church. You know, too many believers do not see themselves as servants of the church. They see themselves as beneficiaries of the church. What can this church do for me? What does this church have for my kids? What does this church have for my teenagers? What is this church going to do for my personal life? Can I make connections here and, and, and fill up my, my professional life? Can I, can, what is this church going to do for me? Instead, we should be asking, what role can I play in this church? What can I do in this church to help the gospel go further? What can I do in this church 
to build the kingdom of God. Now, look, we as a we we want you to be receive a blessing from the church. But if you are you are primarily supposed to be a servant of the church, not just a beneficiary of it. We should be giving more than we receive. Let's keep reading in verse number 25. <clears throat> it says, Wherefore I am a minister or steward, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Now, the word dispensation there is the Greek word meaning assignment. It is a job that has been given to Paul by God. His job was to make the word of God fully known to these believers. God has a global mission to get the gospel to the entire world. But he also has a mission for each one of us. He also has a job for every single one of us. He has a purpose for your time and your talents and your treasure in the church. He has a dispensation or a commission or a job for you. This word, it's a Greek word that means a task giving, given you, not for yourself, but for someone else. And here's the thing. If you don't do the job, no one else is going to do it. It's an individual task for you. See, we like to think, well, if I don't do what God says, he'll just find somebody else. Not all the time. Sometimes God puts you in a position for you to do what he wants you to do. And if we don't do it, it doesn't get done. God gave Paul this job to make the word of God fully known to them, for, not for himself, but for them. In fact, the Bible says when God gives us a job and we don't do it, it's stealing. In Romans, Paul says that he's a debtor to the Romans to bring the gospel to him, to them. God gave him that commission. If he had not fulfilled the job that God had given him, he would be reneging on a debt that he owed the gospel. Paul says our commission, our job, given to us by God, is to make the word of God fully known. Then he describes the message. Look at verse 26. He says, even the mystery, which has been hid from ages and generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Now, the mystery that he's talking about here, part of it is the fact that Christ is what everything is all about. From creation until now, everything is about Jesus. Every Bible story is about Jesus. Every prophecy in the Old Testament is about Jesus. Everything we see in the scriptures is about Jesus. But more than that, everything that's ever happened in the world is all about Christ. Everything that has happened is for him. He is the answer to every question we have. He is the fulfillment of our desire for justice. But then Paul goes on in verse 27. He says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, Christ himself isn't the only part of the mystery. Christ in you is also part of the mysteries. What's, he, what's Paul saying here? Other people should look at our lives and should see something that they can only describe 
as mysterious. Neighbors, family, co-workers, they should see how we give. They should see how we forgive others. They should see how we sacrifice and not understand why we are different. You know, William Borden, he was the, the heir to the Borden Milk Company. And he was destined to become a multi-millionaire. But about the age of 20, 22, he, he forsook his, his inheritance. He gave up his rights. He gave, basically walked away from his family to become a missionary to Egypt. He gives up everything. He goes to Egypt to be a missionary to spread the gospel. Two months later, he catches meningitis. He's on his deathbed, and one of his friends came and asked him if he thought going to Egypt was a mistake. He was so sick, he, he couldn't speak, but he could write, so he took a pen and a piece of paper, and he wrote on the piece of paper, no regrets. He died shortly later, and he was buried in a very humble tomb outside of Cairo, and his tombstone simply has his name, his date of birth and date of death in this phrase. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Our lives should scream to the lost world, everything we're suffering is worth it, but only because of Jesus. Then look at verse number 28 and 29. He says, whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, there's a couple of things I want to notice here, and the first one's in verse number 29. He says, striving according to his working, which worketh in me. Here's what Paul's saying. The best way for you to deepen your relationship with Christ the best way for you to grow closer to God in your relationship and your walk with Him is to help other people deepen their relationship with Christ. As we pour into other people to get them to pour into the relationship with Christ, we draw closer to God. There is nothing you can read. There is nothing you can memorize. There is no sermon you can listen to that will grow you as much as pouring into others, as fulfilling your commission. That's why Paul said in the Scriptures, follow me as I follow Christ. He knew the best way for me to get close to God to help other people get close to God. The second thing we're going to look at is verse, verse number 28. It says, Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, that means mature, in Christ. That's, that's part of my goal with this study. I want to warn you of the dangers in your heart so you can mature in your relationship with Christ. And one of the greatest competitors for first place in your heart and my heart and all of our hearts is money. I don't like talking about money to the church. I don't like preaching about it. it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me think that you think I'm trying to manipulate you to, or guilt you into giving more. But my goal is not to manipulate you or guilt you to giving more. My goal is to help you become mature in Christ. And I know 
that there's nothing more dangerous to your walk with God than your hold on money. You know, Paul said in 1 Timothy, he says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches. Paul is saying, warn those with money about the deceptiveness of money. It will lie to them. It will give them a false sense of security. It's a snare that has disqualified too many people from the faith. Matter of fact, Paul said earlier that the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, I'm not saying if you don't give, then you can't do certain things in the church. But I am warning you that if you're not putting Jesus first place in your heart, it will destroy your faith. C.S. Lewis said this, he says, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. That's why Jesus talked about money more than he talked about anything else. More than he talked about heaven, more than he talked about hell, more than he talked about kindness, he talked about money. He knew that no matter what your mouth says, until your commitment to Christ impacts your wallet, it's all a sham. And that's Paul's goal. To make sure our commitment to Jesus is complete and affects every aspect of our lives. That brings me to the three questions I want to ask this morning as we close. Here's the first one. I remember only half a page, so we'll be done pretty soon. First question. Are you filling up Christ's afflictions? Where in your life are the marks of sacrifice? Where in your life are you sacrificing something you want, something you love, something you desire for the kingdom of God? We are giving up your time, your treasure, your talent for His mission and His kingdom. How can, we are, how can we say that we are bearing Christ's afflictions? Where Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. How can we say we are carrying our cross with Jesus if it doesn't affect us? How can we say he's first in our life if other things haven't changed? If we've not sacrificed anything to make room for his kingdom? Where and how in your life are you filling up Christ's afflictions? Second question, are you fulfilling your commission? God has given every single one of us a job to do personally. And the goal of every job is to make the word of God known. Is to bring lost people into the kingdom of God. To share the gospel and spread the gospel. But God's given every one of us a personal job to do. And God's given you everything you need to fulfill this commission. Your time, your talents, your treasure. It is all given to you for you to do the job that God has for you. Are we using what he's given to fulfill his commission or our own mission? Ask yourself what God has given you to do and listen to what he says. You know, we said last week that the, the reason the church in Acts was so powerful 
I mean, these are the people who turned the world upside down for Christ, who, who got the gospel to the entire known world at the time. They had no internet. They had no automobiles. They had nothing that we have today. They didn't have printing presses. They didn't have copies of the Word of God in every hotel room. They had to struggle to get what they had. They were living the New Testament and writing at the time. They had nothing that we have. But they got the gospel to the entire known world. And here we are. We've got internet, we've got Bible everywhere, we've got the Word of God more than we've ever had it, we've got access to so much of uh, resources, and we're struggling. What's the difference? They heard the Holy Spirit speak, and they obeyed what the Holy Spirit told them to do. The Holy Spirit said, hey, Philip, leave this revival and go to the desert and preach to one person, and Philip did it, and the gospel got to Africa. Why? Because he heard and obeyed the Word of God. So I'm asking you to do. Ask God, what do you have me to do to build your kingdom? And whatever he says do, obey it. But I may have to give up something. Probably will. And that's the point. We rejoice in our sacrifice because we get to build his kingdom. Here's a third question. <laughs> Is your life a mystery. Does the way you live your life, does the way you treat others, does the way you love others make your life a mystery to the lost world? You know, I want to get to heaven and look back and say, you know what, it was hard. I gave up some things I would really rather not. I sacrificed some things that I really wanted to do. I gave up Money I could have kept for myself and bought myself a, a new car because mine won't go into park anymore and, and the radio doesn't work and the seats are falling apart and man, I need a new car. I'm not saying buy me a new car, but hey, if y'all feel like it, buy me a new car. Like I said, man, I could have, I could have done all this other stuff, but, but I, I, I gave it all up and I was odd to people. People ridiculed me. People didn't understand me. But man, it was worth it because I got to build the kingdom of God. I got to fulfill the Word of God. I got to see the Word of God be spread all over the world. Life is short. The Bible says it's just a vapor. You know, we don't have as long as we think we have. Even if you're, you're like Brother McCormick, who's 92. That's a long time. I'm, I'm 42. And I think, man, 92, that's old. Of course, when I was 22, 42 was old. And now that I'm 42, I realize it is. But life's short. We don't know how long we have. Why live it for ourselves? We can live it for His kingdom. His kingdom deserves our first and our best. So ask yourself, is He getting it?